Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. In the course of researching my stories, I often come across Ulysses S. Grant, and no wonder. Soldier, politician, diplomat, and two-term U.S. president. And he was a guy who seemed to be right in the middle of everything. And I ended up getting an email from a gentleman named Louis Gallo. And this is how it read. My name is Louis P. Gallo. I've been an editor of historical documents at the Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library at Mississippi State University since September of 2014. During my time at the USGPL, my colleagues and I have published the first completely annotated edition of Grant's personal memoirs through Harvard University Press. The book has sold over 10,000 copies and has won the 2017 Army Historical Foundation Distinguished Writing Award in the Journals, Memoirs, and Letters category. It also won the Mississippi Library Association's 2018 Mississippi Author Adult Nonfiction Award. It's been reviewed by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New Yorker, the New York Review of Books, Journal of Southern History, and the Library Journal. Famed grant biographer Ron Chernow even wrote a blurb for the book. We also have another book on Grant coming out in April of this year titled Hold On with a Bulldog Grip, a short study of Ulysses S. Grant. It's been selected by Mississippi State University to be the 2019 Maroon Edition. The Maroon Edition is a common reading program held by the university where all incoming freshmen receive a copy of the book. I would love to do a podcast discussion dealing with how the Grant Library ended up in Mississippi and how our recent publications shaped the public's understanding of Grant. I believe this subject is intriguing and topical. And my answer back to Louis P. Gallo was, I believe it's intriguing as well, and would love to have a chance to talk to you about Ulysses S. Grant. So today we have with us Louis P. Gallo, Publications Editor for the Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library and Association. Louis, it's great to have you with us today. Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Why, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. If you wouldn't mind, please share with us um, a little bit about your background and what uh, started your interest in Ulysses S. Grant, and also tell us how in the world did uh, the, the U.S. Grant Library end up in Mississippi? Yeah, perfect, yeah. So, you know, my whole entire life growing up, I had always been fascinated by the presidency and history, of course, and so my goal was to to become a historian eventually one day. Um, and so I went to college, I got a, a, a bachelor's degree in history, and then I got a, a, a master's degree in American studies with a focus on public and applied history. Um, and so that kind of really got me started, um, which is where I discovered um, the field of documentary editing. Now, documentary editing is not, does not deal with filmmaking, as most people think it does. Um, it actually deals with the editing of historical documents. And so there was a really practical skill that I could use um, in studying history. And so I decided to take that route. Um, I, I actually got my start, you know, just basically volunteering at local museums. Um, and then that's when I got my first internship actually was at the um, uh, Batan Death March Museum in Wellsburg, West Virginia. And then from there, I got an internship at the National McKinley uh, Birthplace Museum in Niles, Ohio, um, which is a really great experience. You know, that's where I really start to dive into the presidency and, and understanding the significance of uh, presidential history. Uh, from there, I actually had some experience working on the Frederick Douglass papers, um, which actually I think helped me get this job here at the Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library. 
Uh, this job opened up back in September of 2014. Um, I applied and I got the job. Uh, to my surprise, I saw that it was located in Mississippi, in Starkville, Mississippi, at Mississippi State University. Not to be confused with Ole Miss, two different schools. Um, but when I first saw that, I remember I, I was kind of dumbfounded. I thought it was a typo. I said, how is the Grant Library in, in Mississippi, right, as you know, most people would react. And I did some research, and sure enough, it's, it's here in Mississippi. Um, now that I work here, I, I now know the, the history of how it got here, which I can tell you about. Um, so the history of the, of the library itself started actually in, with the centennial of the Civil War in 1961. Uh, 1961, the Civil War Commissions of Ohio, New York, and Illinois came together to form the Ulysses S. Grant Association. Now, the original goal of the association was to compile all of the known documents related to Grant and to publish them into book form. And so what they did is they, they hired um, uh, John Y. Simon, who was um, a recent Harvard grad, to work as the executive director and managing editor of the project. And so for the first couple of years, uh, the project was located at, um, at the Ohio Historical Society. And uh, Dr. Simon spent his time essentially just collecting every document that he could possibly find. Um, initially, they thought that they were going to get maybe 15 volumes. Uh, they ended up with 32 altogether <laughs> volumes of the papers of Ulysses S. Grant. And that really, the, the published volumes only really account for about 20% of the entire collection. And so there's 80% you know, of the collection is actually unpublished, which is very impressive. Um, but the first volume was published in 1967, I believe. And for the next 40 years, Dr. Simon just continually just pumped out every volume he possibly could um, until 2008. Um, also, during that time, the project actually moved to uh, Southern Illinois University. Um, you know, there's a little, there's at least a, con there's a connection between Grant and Illinois, and, and so it kind of made sense for it to be there. Sadly, in 2008, Dr. Simon passed away. And so the project needed to find a new home. Um, and they needed a new executive director and managing editor. And so they, they looked around and they actually got in touch with Mississippi State University. Now, Mississippi State University is home to uh, Dr. John F. Marzlack. Uh, Dr. John F. Marzlack, he's one of the most well-known Civil War scholars out there. Um, he's basic, he basically wrote the book on Sherman, um, and he had taught at Mississippi State uh, since 1973. And so he agreed to take on the role as executive director. Uh, Mississippi State University actually offered institutional support uh, for the project, and so they then decided to move it down here. Even you know, to strengthen the argument even more, uh, there there is a historical connection between Grant and Mississippi, right? If you think about it, with, without Mississippi, we probably wouldn't know who Grant was. Vicksburg, right? Right, um, right with with him uh, capturing Vicksburg, it essentially catapults him to the national stage, um, and so he he fought here for for two years, and so. So there is a connection. Um, also, Grant, Grant never really had a place that he identified as his home. Um, obviously, he, you know, he was born in um, Ohio. Uh, he grew up near Cincinnati. But then from there, after he went to West Point um, in 1839, he was all over the place for most of his life from, from there on out. Spent time in, uh, I'm sorry, in St. Louis, where he met his future wife, uh, Julia. Um, from there, he, fought, he fights in the Mexican-American War. And then when he comes back from the war, again, he's just shipped all over the place. He's shipped to Michigan, uh, to New York, and then eventually out to the West Coast. 
And then he, once he comes back from there, he moves back to St. Louis. Um, and then the Civil War breaks out. And then so for the next four years, he's a as you know, he's everywhere. And then after that, he becomes the president. And eventually he ends up in New York near the end of his life. And so it's really hard to identify where his, his hometown is or his, you know, his home is. And so it, 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 makes, it makes sense for it to not be in Ohio, right? It, doesn't, it didn't have to be, the, the library didn't have to be in Ohio, right? I think it's, I think it's, it's understandable that it ended up in Mississippi. Every time, in, I, every time I research 19th century stories, somehow or other, Grant gets in the middle of it. I find now, looking at him, his life and career were incredible. He had to, because of all he was involved in, I would guess that by 1880, 1890, his name was probably his name was probably one of the best known, uh, not only in the U.S. but in the world, for for what he had done and what he'd been involved in. Here's a guy who was in the Mexican-American War. He was a he was Lincoln's go-to guy during the Civil War. He had uh, two full terms as president uh, during Reconstruction, during uh, Indian Wars. I mean, he was in the middle of literally everything. What I hope we'll have a chance to talk about is he seemed to get a bad rap from some of the writers in the early 20th century, but it, that has that has pretty much turned around. And yeah. and after looking at documents and from people like you who have really gone deep on his uh, life and career and what he's accomplished, it's he's really turning out. I think he's gone way up on the presidential effectiveness list in terms of things he was involved in and yeah. and the legend that he left. His early life is really, uh, I would say, the most mysterious part uh, of Grant, uh, of, his, uh, of his story. Um, you know, like I said, he was born um, in Ohio, in the Ohio Valley, uh, Point, in Point Pleasant, Ohio. Uh, the family then moved to Georgetown, Ohio, right outside of Cincinnati. And his father owned a tannery uh, during that time. Um, and most, surprisingly, most of his family members were actually abolitionists. Uh, his father even uh, lived with uh, John Brown, when he was a child, believe it or not, which is a fact that I, I just find fascinating. Now, the, the abolitionist views of the family didn't really necessarily rub off on Grant at an early age. There's a letter that he wrote, uh, I believe it was um, either during the war, or the Civil War, or right after it, where he said that growing up, he never considered himself an abolitionist. And from what I can tell, he really was kind of indifferent towards slavery in his early years. And then that kind of that view kind of changes and evolves over time as he grows up. Um, but like I said, he, he lived in Georgetown during most of his childhood. Um, and then when he became uh, a young lad of 17 years old, uh, his father decided that he was going to go to West Point uh, Military uh, or the, the, mil the United States Military Academy in West Point, New York. Uh, now, at first, Grant was reluctant, to say the least. He did not want to go into the military. Uh, but his father said, look, we have a opportunity at a free education and you're gone. And so Grant didn't have a choice. And so he ended up going to West Point in 1839. Uh, he graduated in the middle of his class, uh, which is one of those myths that surround Grant, uh, that he graduated near the bottom of his class. He did. He actually graduated right in the middle. <laughs> um, um, and from there, like I said, uh, he was then stationed and moved uh, to Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis, Missouri. And that's where um, he met his future wife, Julia Dent Grant. Now, Julia Grant, interest, interestingly enough, uh, she grew up um, essentially as a Southern belle of sorts, even though she's in Missouri. 
Um, her father was a slave owner. Um, they had a very large plantation outside um, St. Louis, on, on the outskirts of St. Louis, um, which is still there today. Uh, it's Whitehaven was the name of it. Um, and from there, this is you know he 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 visited Whitehaven from Jefferson Barracks constantly because he was he was basically falling in love with Julia. And this is in the early 1840s. Uh, around this time, when he's he's courting Julia, uh, the Mexican-American War breaks out. Um, and so before he actually goes and fights off fights in the war, he proposes to Julia. Now at first uh, she says no because she didn't feel like her father would approve. And so Grant, you know, he, he asks again, and she finally agrees to it. But they kind of kept it a secret. Um, he gave her his class ring, kind of as an engagement ring. And so he went. And went off and fought in the war. He was gone for, uh, I think, almost four years fighting in the war, or at least you know, fighting in the war and then being shipped around. Um, and then when he comes back uh, in 1848, he's actually, him and Julie marry within a month, I think, upon his uh, return. And so from there, he's still in the military. Um, he's still a military man, and he's still being shipped around all over the place. Um, and so in the 1850s, like I said, um, he's He's stationed in Michigan at some point. He's uh, stationed, they move him to New York. And then during that time period is when uh, his wife actually has their first uh, child, Frederick Dent, or Frederick Dent Grant. Um, and then she gets pregnant again. And when she's pregnant with the second child, he, Grant is actually then shipped out to the West Coast in California. Now, Julia wanted to go with him. But uh, he says, you know, you're pregnant. I don't think it would be a good idea for you to travel all the way out to the West Coast. So she stays in St. Louis while he goes out to the West Coast. Now, his time in the West Coast, um, is, it's, a, it's a bad time for him. I would label him as depressed at that time. You know, he's essentially, he's away from his family. He's lucky to get a letter from them every now and then. Um, so he's not, he's not the happiest person. The record shows that it's, it's kind of difficult to know exactly what's going on with him. Um, there are rumors that he's starting to drink, which could be true. You know, the culture of the military at that time is there are, there's a lot of alcohol <laughs> being tossed around. Um, and like I said, if you, when you're in that state where you're, you're kind of depressed, you're away from your family, you don't really have much to do, I think it's understandable why he would turn to liquor. But with that said, there isn't really any solid documentary proof that shows that he was drinking, but he actually ends up resigning, and the rumor is that he resigned because of his drinking. Um, and from there, he returns back to St. Louis with his family, where he finally meets his second son, who he, had, he, he hadn't seen for the first two years of his life. And things kind of get even worse for Grant at that point. He tries his hand at farming. It doesn't go over very well. Um, he tries some other ventures that fail, and he actually ends up at one point even selling firewood on the streets of St. Louis in the late 50s, so things aren't going very well. It's, it's around this time that um, his father-in-law, who I said was a slave owner, actually gave Grant um, one of his slaves, a man named William Jones, and Jones um, helped Grant with his farming for about a year uh, until 1859 when, for some reason, which we don't know why, uh, Grant gives William Jones his freedom. Now, we have the manumission document that shows you know, how it went down, but he, he never gave a reason as to why he actually gave William his freedom. And even more, it's even more confusing because, like I said, this is a, a, a tough time for Grant financially. And so he could have easily have just sold William, but he decided to give him his freedom. And so I think that might be the start of his, you know, the, the evolution of his views on slavery. 
Um, you know, he, he's working directly with this man who's roughly the same age as him, who's probably separated from his family too, and so he's probably starting to empathize. I'm, I'm just speculating here. Um, and, but then, obviously, after that, uh, 1861, uh, the Civil War breaks out. And then, you know, from there, kind of everything changes for Grant. As a president, with regard to his methods and means of reconstruction, and didn't he do a lot to forward their situation? Yeah, so that's, that's kind of where I, I think you see a shift in, uh, in the view of Grant recently. People are starting to learn about Grant's progressive stance on civil rights. Uh, he advocated for and signed civil rights legislation for African Americans, something that no other president would do until LBJ nearly 100 years later. Um, also, his dismantling of the KKK with the Enforcement Acts of 1870 and 1871, I believe, you know, that really elevated his legacy in the eyes of, uh, of modern historians. And I wanted to go back just quickly on the Mexican-American War. Wasn't he known for valor during that war, and did he not learn a lot on how to command? Yeah, most certainly. Um, uh, maybe not so much uh, as uh, in he didn't really learn much in command as he did in um, understanding logistics, I think, um, because during that time he was actually a quartermaster. And so he, and that's when he really learns how to, how to move, how army moves and what it takes. Um, and there, there are instances of, of valor, like you're speaking of. Um, there are some stories where um, during one of the battles, they needed to get information to one of the generals. And so Grant decided to get on his horse and pretty much cross enemy fire. And to uh, avoid being shot, uh, the story is he rode side saddle on a horse, like on, on the opposite side of the horse, and made it past uh, the enemy lines. Um, and so that's one, that's one story. The, the other story was when they're, um, uh, during the battle for Mexico City, when, as they're moving into the city, Grant actually gets a howitzer and goes and finds a church steeple and goes up to the top of the church steeple with his howitzer and, and uh, gives you know cover for the men moving into to the city. And so th those are those are the big stories related to Grant during the Mexican-American War. But I think what's interesting is uh, maybe to the point that you're talking about, you know, he he fought under both uh, Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott during the Mexican-American War. And both of those men, uh, they, they had different styles of leadership. Zachary Taylor was a little bit more reserved, uh, quieter. Uh, he didn't dress very nicely. You know, um, I believe his nickname was Old Rough, uh, Rough and Ready, I believe, for a reason. Uh, Winfield Scott, on the other hand, was the exact opposite. He was all about pomp. He was all about looking the part. Uh, and so he kind of got, he had, a, he had an experience with both, both sides of the spectrum, I think, there during the war which probably informed his command style during the Civil War. And what was his command style during the Civil War? What was he known for, and how did he dress? He was not your yeah. spit-and-polish type of guy, was he? Not at all. And I think, I think, in my opinion, I think he gets that from Zachary Taylor, right? Um, I think, and again, I can't speak for Grant. This is, this is just my perception of, of his command style. But I think he understood that being unpretentious uh, allowed for his men to to believe in him more, right? He kind of got down on their level and that they, they trusted him because of it, I, I think. Um, but speaking of his, his, his style, he was obviously a very aggressive general, um, as opposed to most of the political generals during the time who were very hesitant. They're very hesitant to go into battle, you know, for political reasons, I think. Um, but Grant, on the other hand, at the start of the war, at the start, he doesn't really have any political ambitions. His goal is to essentially do his part 
help save the union, and then get back to his family. And so you, that's where I think you see this kind of aggressive style where when he, and he said this himself in his memoirs, once he started to do something, he never stopped and turned back. He, did, he kept forward. Um, and so that's what you see when he, when he goes into the South, right? After he captures uh, uh, Fort Donaldson, he goes in and he drives into Mississippi and gets below Vicksburg and to capture Jackson and then takes Vicksburg, something that no one else could do. And Lincoln, as you said, saw that. He saw that tenacity. He, he realized that Grant might be the, the general that he needed. And so from there, you know, he goes to Chattanooga, again, another uh, strong Confederate stronghold that the Union just can't get a hold of. And he gets in there, and along with some other great generals, you know, Thomas is, General Thomas is there, and uh, Philip Sheridan and Sherman are all there. The, those, that group really helped to, to get Chattanooga back. And from that point on, Grant is really catapulted, you know, because that's when Lincoln moves him to the east and he takes command over the entire army and then just goes on a full assault. You know, he sends Sherman through Georgia. He's got Sheridan moving through the Shenandoah Valley while he's trying to capture Robert E. Lee's uh, Army of Northern Virginia. Head to head, Robert E. Lee had a reputation for being a tremendous commander and a very savvy general, uh, general in war. How did Grant stack up with Robert E. Lee? Yeah. So from a tactical standpoint, uh, I think Robert E. Lee has, holds the advantage. I think he was a much better tactician than Grant was. But when it comes to overall strategy, Grant's strategy, I think Grant has the advantage. Uh, you can just see that, in, like I said, in the way that he uh, uh, attacked uh, Lee, not just Lee, but the, attacks the Confederate Army in the East. His strategy is, is way more effective than Lee. And, and this is also why you see on an individual battle level, Lee would sometimes get the upper hand over Grant because Lee was just, like you're saying, just a brilliant tactician, was a brilliant general. And so it, it's, you know, some, you know, he's weak, weaker in some areas, but stronger in others, I would say. Take a few minutes and describe the Vicksburg campaign from, yeah. from Grant's perspective. Yeah. So that, like I said, I, I, if I had to use one word, I would say tenacious. At first, he tries to take Vicksburg from, you know, by land from the north coming down. Um, that fails miserably because to maintain that kind of supply line is very difficult, especially when you have um, someone like Nathan Bedford Forrest is coming through and cutting off every supply that he possibly could during that time. And most generals, I think, would have retreated back and maybe given up or at least... Uh, not been as not have been as te as tenacious, but Grant was not that kind of general. Grant decided, you know what, I'm going to. My goal is to capture Vicksburg. I'm going to do it. And so from that point, he decides that he's going to, you know, use the Mississippi River, get past Vicksburg, get below Vicksburg, cross over there, and then, you know, because by doing so, your supply lines aren't as long, right? And so then he's able to move into Mississippi from south of Vicksburg. Take capture Jackson, the the capital, and then he's basically cut off the, the supply route for for Vicksburg, and then he just surrounds Vicksburg, and then just essentially executes a war of attrition um, on the city of Vicksburg, cuts it off from every angle, um, and then he 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 sends Sherman to kind of stop uh, Joseph Johnson's forces who are coming from the east, and just just as Lincoln would say, chew and choke as much as possible. And that's what he did until they, they, had to, they had to break and give up and surrender. 
And it was really, I mean, I mean, this is something that people study to this day, right? And most military institutions, they study Grant's tactics and strategies because, because they were so effective. How important was Vicksburg yeah. to the South? Oh, it's very important. So uh, I think Lincoln said it was the key, right? So if, if the goal is to, to kind of smother the Confederacy, they, wanted, they, they, they um, executed the, the Anaconda Plan, which was proposed, I believe, by uh, the aging Winfield Scott, which essentially is you just surround, just cut off everything. You, you, you control the East Coast, and then once you can control the Mississippi, then you can kind of just, like I said, just suffocate it, essentially. And so, as Lincoln said, it's, it's the key, and, and he wanted Grant to put it in his pocket, and Grant was able to do that. Talk, tell us a little bit about Shiloh and the aftermath. And also, do you have any stories of uh, Grant uh, on a personal level during the Civil War in his position as general? Yeah, um, I mean, I can tell you about, uh, there's, a, there's a well-known story about Grant at Shiloh. Um, so the Battle of Shiloh, this is in you know southern Tennessee, right on the, uh, the Mississippi border. Uh, this is the first real big engagement of the Civil War. Um, it was... A two-day battle that was catastrophic for the Union on the first day. Uh, Grant's men were situated um, n- near the, the Shiloh Church, um, and that's when uh, Albert Sidney Johnson decided to attack Grant's men. And it was an incredible battle. Um, like I said, on the first day, uh, Grant lost all kinds of men. Um, his lines were pushed back um, all, all the way up against the Tennessee River. Um, and it was not looking good. And so that first night, uh, Grant, you know, he, he's trying to regroup and think what he's going to do. And so the first thing he does, he, he thinks, you know, it's, it's pouring down rain. And so he, he goes into this, this field hospital, essentially. And he talks about this in his memoirs, about how he couldn't take the screams and, and the sounds of the hospital. It was just too much for him. And so he decided to just pick up and go lay out underneath a tree in the pouring rain. And as he's sitting there, I mean, you can just picture it, right? He's sitting there, it's pouring down rain, he's smoking his, his cigar, and Sherman walks up to him and he says, you know, we've had the devil's day, haven't we? And story goes, Grant looks up at Sherman and he says, yeah, but we'll, we'll whoop him tomorrow, though. To me, I mean, that's, not only is, like that, that scene just... You know, an incredible scene, but it's really, I think it really speaks volumes about who Grant was as a general, right? Talking about this tenacious kind of mentality. Again, most generals would have taken the army, moved it on the other side of the river and tried to regroup there, but Grant didn't. He, hold, he held the ground there after that first day. And then sure enough, on that second day, he was able to, to, uh, to push back the Confederates and the Confederates retreated all the way back into to Corinth, Mississippi. But it, it, was one, it was one of those battles that were, it was just, Brutal. Um, I, I believe there were more casualties at that one battle than every other American war prior. So all the men who died in the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, did not total the number of men, the number of casualties at, at Shiloh. So it just gives you an idea of just how how impactful that, that battle was. Yeah, it was a terrible, terrible time. Yes. Yeah, when war became mechanized. Yeah, and that's really when, for Grant, he knew that this war wasn't going to be a short war. 
right? Leading up to that point, he he thought that it would maybe it might have been just kind of like a little bit of resistance at first, and it would have been over quickly. But he realized after that, he was like, no, this is going to take take a while and a lot of a lot of fighting. Any idea what caused the turnaround at Shiloh? Uh, I, uh, well, so you've got reinforcements coming. Um, I believe Buell's army comes um, after that first, near the end of that first day, and that really helps Grant. Um, also, too, I, you know, from my standpoint, I think the Confederacy making that attack, uh, I think they made a mistake by making that attack on the first day. You know, they're, they're fighting um, a defensive war at that point. And so, in my opinion, if, if Albert Sidney Johnson would have just uh, stayed in Corinth and reinforced all of his men in Corinth, he would have been able to put up a stronger fight against Grant when Grant moved in towards him. Um, but he decided to go on the offensive, and I think that was really the downfall for the Confederacy because he just couldn't he couldn't handle the, the manpower that, that Grant had. Tell us a little bit about Chattanooga and his promotion. Yeah, certainly. So Chattanooga, again, was a, a very big turning point uh, for Grant. Um, you know, they call it the Battle in the Clouds. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever been to Chattanooga, but it, it's an incredible city. Um, you know, so when Grant arrives in Chattanooga, it's the Union Army is essentially starving um, and it does, it does not look good for them. And so Grant kind of, he gets in there, uh, he takes some advice from his generals, like I said, he had Thomas and Sheridan and Sherman on what to do. Um, and so he sets up shop essentially in, in, in the city itself and then with the, the goal, the mission of capturing Missionary Ridge, which is, you know, on top of Missionary Ridge is where all the Confederates are in line. Um, and also, the other goal was to, to take Lookout Mountain. And what, what's really incredible about that battle is that Grant can see the whole thing as it's unfolding, just because of the geography of, of the battle itself. And so what he does is he sends Sherman on, to, uh, on the left kind of as a feint uh, to kind of, you know, to, to force the Confederates to move their men over to their right, while at the same time, um, he's sending Joseph Hooker up Lookout Mountain and Philip Sheridan towards Missionary Ridge. Now, I believe that the initial plan was for Sheridan to kind of get to the bottom of Missionary Ridge and, and wait and, and kind of see how things developed. But Sheridan took it on himself because he, he, he recognized that, that he could actually take the ridge. And he just goes up and essentially he captures it. And like I said, it's, it's really a, a team effort at that point. I mean, Grant obviously is the, is the, the commanding general at the time. But with all of his men, you know, he's able to, to take Missionary Ridge and to take Lookout Mountain, and it becomes a success. So I think the Battle of Chattanooga is really what catapults him into the national stage. I mean, that's what really gets him. Um, uh, he's able to take command of the entire Union Army because of that victory. So a few months after uh, the Battle of Chattanooga, Grant is actually then promoted to Lieutenant General, which is the first time anyone holds that, that title since George Washington. So it gives you an idea of just how much faith Lincoln was putting into Grant as a general. Explain a little bit about the Overland Campaign and the Siege of Petersburg. I lost a great-great-uncle at Petersburg. Uh, wow, really? I did one episode fully on his service when he joined the Civil War from the time he got in until the, until the day he died at Petersburg. But tell us a wow. little bit about those campaigns. Yeah, so the Overland Campaign was definitely a challenge for Grant. You know, it's been studied through and through uh, over the years through every historian, every Civil War historian possible. Um, it, like I said, it, it's a really, it's a, it's an effort by Grant and Sherman and the rest of the, you know, the high command of the Union to really put an end to the war. 
Um, at this point, no one has been able to capture or stop um, Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. And so that's, that's Grant's main goal. His goal was to go wherever Robert E. Lee was and to attack him, and which, you know, that that's a that, that's understandable, but that is that was definitely a daunting uh, challenge. What territory did the Overland Campaign uh, encompass? Yeah. yeah, so the Overland Campaign happens in uh, pretty much eastern Virginia. Uh, I think the the initial goal might have been to go take Richmond, and so Grant starts making moves towards towards Richmond. Uh, he. And during, during those movements, uh, there are countless battles where he loses all kinds of men. Um, you have the Battle of the Wilderness. Uh, you have the Battle of Cold Harbor, which, which was one of his biggest regrets after the war. He talks about that in his memoirs. He, he regretted, the uh, he said, the second assault on Cold Harbor. Um, I, I believe he lost about 6,000 men um, during that battle, which was a terrible, terrible battle, um, as most people know. <clears throat> but eventually he's able to get past Robert E. Lee to go south of, of Richmond and, and go into Petersburg, which Petersburg, again, is a, a, this, whole, this whole campaign is a challenge for Grant. Uh, nothing was easy. You know, he's fighting in an enemy territory. Uh, he doesn't know the land as well as Robert E. Lee does. Um, he might have more men, but it's always uh, tougher when you're on the offensive fighting a defensive army. But like I said, he's able to get to Petersburg. And then even at, even when he gets to Petersburg, there's still hiccups. Um, I'm sure you've heard of the battle, uh, the, the crater, where again it was just it was a, essentially a failure on their on the Union's part. Um, it was a, a a massacre of sorts of, of Union soldiers. Um, yeah, they they but, blew they blew the crater, which which should have been successful, but yeah. then the, through uh, wrong commands sent. Uh, at least, I guess, a battalion into it. Yeah, yeah, and it, it did, like you said, it did not go over very well. Um, I think that you know people wanted to place blame on on uh, Grant. Uh, obviously, I think Burnside kind of got the, the full brunt of the blame for that. Um, there was another commander; I can't remember his name exactly, but they accused him of actually running off and and getting drunk instead of actually commanding his troops. And so it was it was just a disaster. But um, again, Grant's tenacity did not stop him, and he just kept pressing forward and pressing forward. And then he's actually able to capture uh, capture Richmond. You know, and at that point, Jefferson Davis and the Confederate uh, government flee Richmond as fast as possible. And that's really the start of the end, I think. Um, I think, you know, based off the, the the documents that I've read, I think Robert E. Lee knew that uh, it was coming to an end. But even but him being you know the strong general that he was, he didn't want to give up. Um, and so from that point on, Grant is just essentially cornering him until they get to Appomattox. And that's when Robert E. Lee decides that it's over for his army. Um, now, that's not to say that the whole war was over. There's still plenty of conflict that is uh, happening. Um, Sherman is still, you know, he's pushing through Georgia and he's moving up along the coast going after Joseph Johnston's army. And then soon after then, um, he's actually able to capture Joseph Johnston's army. And that's really when it kind of, everything comes to a halt. So the Civil War ends in April, April 1865, and what happens to Grant at that point? So for Grant, um, he's essentially considered one of the saviors of the Union. Um, I, you, you touched on this earlier. Um, he's basically the most famous person in America right behind uh, Abraham Lincoln, who had been assassinated at that point. Um, so really, Grant is the most uh, respected and well-known person in the country. Wasn't Grant supposed to be at Ford's Theater that night? Yes, yeah, um, he actually talks about this in his memoirs. 
Uh, he was meeting with Lincoln at the White House that day. Uh, Lincoln um, and his wife invited uh, Grant and his wife to come to Ford's Theater that night. Uh, Grant didn't want to make the decision. You know, he, he left it up to his wife, and so he sent a message to Julia, to which she said um, she declined the invitation because she actually wanted to go visit their children who were um, in school in uh, Burlington, New Jersey, I believe. And so Grant declined the invitation to go to Ford's Theater that night. And as we all know, that's when Lincoln was shot. So lucky for Grant, he was not there. But it would have been interesting to see how things would have played out had he been there. So he has become a national hero. What is happening to him in those years after 1865? I think these are the years that most people like tend to skip over, right, between uh, the end of the Civil War and the start of his presidency. But there's actually a lot of things going on at that time. He's actually serves as an interim uh, secretary of war, which most people don't realize, um, which this is also tied into um, Andrew Johnson's impeachment, right? Because and what Andrew Johnson does is he removes Stanton from that position, effectively breaking the Tenure of Office Act, which is the, the pretext that the Congress uses to impeach him. And so Grant's kind of in the middle of the Johnson impeachment, but he doesn't really want anything to do with it. So he, he kind of stays uh, out of the light. Um, but from that point, I mean, it's a consensus agreement that Grant should be the Republican nominee for president in 1868. And so he gets the nomination. He runs on the platform of let us have peace. And he, he wins. Uh, I, I think I, I don't think anybody was surprised that Grant won the presidency. Um, now, I, I always like to make this point, too, because uh, most people don't realize this either. Uh, there were a lot of people in the South who respected Grant at this time, believe it or not. You know, we like to we tend to think today that there's no way the South would have liked someone like General Grant, but they did. You know, because he was so kind to Robert E. Lee at Appomattox, because he let him, you know, he let he let him go. He let his army go, let the uh, Robert E. Lee's army go. He let them keep their sidearms and their horses. They they respected Grant for that, and because of that, he you know he actually he actually won uh, the state of Mississippi um, in in 1872 when he ran for president the second time. Which is a, a fact that just surprises me, even you know, knowing knowing. What were the major controversies uh, during his presidency? What kind of challenges did he face? Yeah, uh, so you know, most people, when most people think of Grant, they, they tend to reduce him down to, to, to talking points, right? So if, if you were to ask somebody, tell me what you know about Ulysses S. Grant, they would say, oh, he was a butcher, uh, he smoked cigars, he was an alcoholic. And he was a corrupt president, right? So there are some truths in the, in those myths, especially when it comes to, to his presidency. Um, there was a lot of corruption um, surrounding his administration. It's been viewed as ineffective and full of corruption. Even though Grant himself was never directly implicated in any scandal, uh, his administration was chock full of corrupt people, which contextually speaking was the norm. Uh, it was called the Gilded Age for a reason. You know, uh, there were all kinds of economic opportunities, but with those opportunities came greed and corruption. But interestingly, though, uh, that that reputation like we touched on a little bit earlier has changed a little bit. It's been on the ascension recently. Uh, I saw that there was a recent poll that had his presidency ranked, I think, 21st out of 45 presidents. This is like last past year. You know, you, you compare that to a 1990 poll um, where he was ranked, I think, like 37th. It's, it's an interesting shift, but um, like you're saying, there was corruption. Um, you have the, risk, the whiskey ring scandal, 
the whiskey ring scandal, essentially, one of his his uh, his, his right-hand men, uh, Orville Babcock, was involved in this scandal. Uh, Orville Babcock actually served on um, served with Grant at Vicksburg, and then became a part of Grant's administration. So essentially, what Babcock was doing, he was he was siphoning off uh, tax revenue of whiskey sales. Um, it was this elaborate plot, um, and he actually was uh, got in trouble for it. Um, but you know, Grant was apparently unaware of anything that was going on. Babcock lied to him about his involvement, and Grant, being you know, he trusts this man, he took his word for it, but he was wrong. Uh, Babcock was was guilty, um, and so there there were plenty of, uh, of issues with Grant's presidency. But like I said, none of it really directly implicated Grant himself. That's not to excuse him, right? The way I look at it, I, I think Grant as a politician is not the same as Grant as a military leader for for this reason. When Grant's in the military, like when when you're in the military, you have to be able to trust the man next to you, right? I mean, that's that's the only way you're going to survive, really, is if you can trust that person next to you. And Grant did that. And that's why he was so successful as a military man. That doesn't translate very well into politics, right? As, as a politician, you can't really trust the guy next to you. Uh, and I don't think Grant realized that. I think this is where his his lack of experience in government really got the best of him, because he, he was so trusting in those people who took advantage of him. With regard to Reconstruction, what, yes, sir. how did Grant handle that? And how is he looked at now as we look back at, at uh, the laws he passed and how he was able to enact? That had to have been a very, very difficult time for a president. Yeah, most certainly. Um, so I think Grant was very effective when it came to Reconstruction. Like, you know, I touched on it uh, with the Enforcement Acts and Civil Rights legislation. Um, he was able to really kind of maintain stability in the South during his presidency. Um, but a lot of people didn't really agree with his, his approach. And so when he leaves the office, um, everything kind of just comes to an end at that point, right? All the policies that he, he tried to uh, enact and push were really just kind of, people just, they just kind of got rid of them. Um, and then that's when you see the, uh, the emergence of, of Jim Crow laws in the South. And then you have, um, Basically, like for example, like the state of Mississippi, they changed their constitution in the 1890s, which, by doing so, essentially just gets rid of any kind of civil rights um, advancements that they they had done during you know, Grant's administration. And so after Grant after Grant leaves the office, it, everything kind of falls apart when it comes to Reconstruction. What was Grant's contribution with regard to Indian relations, and also with regard to the Jewish element? Yeah, no, these, these are great questions. Yeah, certainly. So, uh, as with most things, uh, Grant's, most things Grant, uh, his Indian policy was complex, to say the least. Um, at the start of his presidency, you know, he implemented what he called a peace policy toward the natives. Uh, basically, the policy worked towards making peace with them by supporting uh, their transition onto reservations and attempting to Americanize them or assimilate them into American culture. Uh, through Christianization. Uh, there was even talk of making them citizens, which didn't end up happening, I think, until the 1920s, I believe. But not surprisingly, this is still, it's, it's a dramatic shift from how the U.S. government handled uh, the natives um, in the decades leading up to his presidency. I mean, you know, talks of citizenship were completely out of the question for someone like um, Andrew Jackson, for example. So he was very progressive uh, when it came to his Native American policy at first. 
Um, Which is amazing because I think he was president uh, when Custer was massacred. Right. So that so it shifts a lot right? of a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of American sympathies against the Indians at that <laughs> point. Yes. Yes. So so things changed. So at the start of his presidency, presidency, like I said, he's very progressive with his policy. Um, in 1869, he actually appointed the first Native American, a man named Elias Parker, uh, as commissioner of, of Indian Affairs. Now, Parker was a close confidant of Grant's. He was a Seneca Indian who served on Grant's staff during the Civil War. Um, and he was most actually most well-known for drafting uh, the final term to surrender in Appomattox. Um, and so as, as a commissioner uh, of Indian Affairs, Parker was able to really successfully carry out Grant's uh, peace policy. Now, at the same time, you know, there are people in government who don't really accept Parker you know, as a Native American in high office or Grant's peace policy. They're still the old guard where they, they see the Indians as savages who can't be civilized. And so their, their goal is to just get them out of the way, essentially. And so by 1871, Parker, Parker had been unjustly forced out of that position as commissioner. And from there on, everything about Grant's peace policy just kind of devolves. To make matters even worse, there was an economic panic in 1873. Uh, you know, that puts a lot of pressure on Grant, you know, to allow, um, for example, to allow miners uh, to settle in the Black Hills because of the prospect of gold, which would kind of help ease the problems of this panic. And so Grant has to deal with this. And the way he does, the way he deals with this is by negotiating with the Indians. But after trying to negotiate with him, with the tribal leaders, it kind of falls apart. And Grant's really, he's unable to prevent the miners from moving into the Black Hills. And the result, as you were touching on, it was just countless wars and military engagements with the natives until they were essentially forced to give up their holdings in, in the Black Hills and move even further west. And so, you know, like I said, Grant's initial goal of peace with the natives and, and uh, assimilating them into American society and making them citizens just kind of fell apart. How about the um, how about the Jewish community in America? How was yeah. he connected with them? Yeah, so this is another big uh, story surrounding Grant. Uh, another controversy, I should say, surrounding Grant. Um, during the Civil War, this is this is when Grant is actually making his way into Mississippi. Um, he issues the infamous uh, General Order Number Eleven, which essentially expelled Jews as a class from his military lines. Now that sounds terrible because it was terrible. Um, but Grant's, Grant, essentially what he's doing at the time, um, he, there are um, uh, people who are trying to move cotton throughout his lines illegally. And so he's trying to put an end to that. And his solution was not the right solution, obviously. Um, Lincoln immediately rescinds the order as soon as he sees it because Lincoln understood just how wrong it was. Um, and, but this is something that Grant really repented for the rest of his life. Uh, he, he writes about it uh, countless times after the fact and how much he regretted it. And so to kind of make up for it, um, during his presidency, Grant actually uh, appointed more Jewish people uh, to high office than any other president before him. And this is kind of a way to you know, mend the fences of what he had done. And even more interesting, uh, he was invited to attend the dedication ceremony of a Jewish synagogue in Washington, D.C., uh, which essentially made him the first uh, sitting president to attend uh, a synagogue service, which is really interesting. Um, but I, I think it just speaks to how much how much he regretted that order. And I also think it, it's very it, it's very revealing because it shows that Grant was able to admit his faults and then try to work on them. The same thing with slavery, right? 
He like he said, he wasn't an abolitionist before the war, but then he ends up signing and pushing for uh, civil rights legislation for African Americans. And so Grant, Grant, like I said, he can be reduced down to these talking points, these simple talking points. But he's his character is much more complex than, than what most people think. So Grant, I would call Grant a family man for sure, and you can see that um, in his correspondence with his wife and in the way he talks about her and his family and his uh, memoirs, which I'm gonna do a little plug here if that's okay. So right now I'm showing you, this is um, our latest edition, our edition of uh, Grant's personal memoirs. It's a complete annotated edition. It was published by Harvard University Press. And what we did, um, my colleagues, um, John F. Marzalak, the executive director, and David S. Nolan, who's uh, our associate editor, um, we went through Grant's memoirs and completely unpacked it Essentially, um, we identify every single person that Grant mentions. Um, we identify places that no longer exist. Uh, we correct Grant when he's wrong. We clarify him when things are kind of vague on Grant's part. But in the memoirs, like I said, he does a fantastic job of telling about uh, the story of meeting his wife and how his family kind of grew and developed. Like I said, he was a family man for sure, um, which is another aspect of Grant's life that most people don't think about. He had four, four kids. He had three sons and, and one daughter. They were all born in the 1850s. Um, and interestingly enough, his eldest son, Frederick Grant, was alongside him for some uh, during most of uh, his battles during the Civil War. He, he joined him during the Vicksburg campaign. So Fred is only, I think he's maybe 13 at this time, and he's with his father when they get below Vicksburg and, and capture Jackson. Uh, there's a story that, that Fred wrote about. He, he, he liked to say that he was the, he captured Jackson himself. So as the Union Army is moving into Jackson to take over the city and the Confederates are retreating, little Fred, who's in his little Union uniform, little 13-year-old Fred is at the front of the line. He's actually the first person to make it into the city. And so he liked to joke that he captured the city. Um, but that's another surprising little anecdote because you, to think of a 13-year-old fighting in the, one of the bloodiest wars in American history. It's, it's, it's kind of odd, but uh, I think the way Grant couched it, he, he kind of said that this was uh, really a learning experience for Fred. I can tell Fred. Fred's an interesting character that most people don't um, know about. Fred was involved with a lot, in a lot of big events during the late 19th century, right? So he fights with his father during the war, or I shouldn't say, he, he, he's with his father during the war, um, he's there during his presidency, obviously. Um, he also uh, graduates from West Point, where he has an interesting time there. Um, there are some uh, accusations of, of hazing on his part while he's there. Um, he then uh, travels Europe, uh, I believe, with Sherman. He then comes back. Uh, was supposed He was supposed to be at, um, with Custer at the Battle of Little Bighorn, but he was actually recalled to D.C. right before it was luckily not there. Then later, after his father leaves the presidency, he's appointed as um, a minister to Austria-Hungary. And then he comes back. Um, I believe he's like a police commissioner in New York City for a while. And then he actually fought as a general in the Spanish-American War. Um, President McKinley actually promoted him to brigadier general during the Spanish-American War. We actually, we even have uh, the original uh, letter from McKinley to Julia Grant where he tells, informs her that he's going to promote Fred. Um, and then Fred, uh, I think he's involved with um, 
uh, a thoroughbred horse racing after that. Uh, and then he eventually, um, he passes away, interestingly enough. He passed, he died um, while the Titanic was making its maiden voyage. So like a few days before the Titanic hit the iceberg. 1912, yeah. Yeah, 1912. So it's, his story is fascinating. You know, he, he's, he, he, like I said, he, he's around all these major events and these major figures. And it, it's really incredible, uh, the life that he had. And it's, it's, his story isn't really told as much as it should be, I think. The, the Forrest Gump of the latter 19th century. <laughs> yeah, we, we actually like to make that joke. He really was. <laughs> That's great. When Grant left the presidency, uh, he soon went on a world tour, did he not? And that lasted about two years? Yes, sir. So after after he left uh, the office, he, he decided that he wanted to kind of go on a little vacation, right? Well, it's, at the start it was a vacation, but it kind of morphs into this this diplomatic world tour. So as he's going through the, through the world tour, he's meeting every major figure at the time that you could possibly think of. He meets Queen Victoria. Uh, he meets uh, uh, Bismarck. He met the Pope at the time. He got to see the Great Pyramids, and then he and then he moves in through India, and then goes into uh, uh, you know throughout Asia. And while he's in Asia, he actually has he, he kind of um, so during the trip, he actually has his wife with him, and um, his son Jesse is traveling with him as well. And at that point, his his daughter Nellie is living in England because she married an Englishman, and so they got to actually visit his daughter Nellie while he was on the world tour. But as I was saying, during this tour, he actually holds talks between Japan and China over the Roku Islands. Uh, there was a dispute between the two countries over who, who owned the islands, and Grant tried to, to mediate, essentially, between the two countries. Now, uh, I don't think the talks panned out at all, but still, this is really the first time uh, any president is doing something like this, right? Going around the world and really speaking not just for the American people, but for the American government as well. The trip took about two years. After they left Japan, they went to San Francisco. And then once they arrived in San Francisco to, to great affair, uh, fanfare, they then moved throughout the country and they visited, you know, I think uh, him and Julia actually went down in a, a mine at one point in Nevada. Uh, and we have a, a great picture of them, right? Said that, you know, Julia does not want to go down in the mine. Uh, we have a great picture of uh, Grant and Julia right after they, uh, they came out of a mine a mine in uh, Nevada. Uh, it's a great story. How apparently uh, when they got to the mine, uh, Grant said that you know Julia, there's no way Julia would want to go down into it, and so Julia protested. She said, "No, no, no, I'm going down there with you." And so she puts on this big old coat. And she has her little lamp with her, and they go down in the mine. And she came, she came back up with them. And that's when you see that that image of her. It's a, it's a really fantastic image. So after after that, they kind of they finally make it back home, and that's really the end of their world tour. But it took about two years altogether. And where was home at that time? They're living in New York City um, at that time. Um, I don't mean to stop you. I think we're having a tornado warning right now. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Listen. Uh, we're having a tornado warning. Yeah, well, uh, you better find a safe spot. Um, can I call you back? Yeah, give, or... me, a, give me a call back. Do what you okay, have to do. I'll... Okay, thank you. Sorry about this. Sorry. No, that's all right. Good luck. Well, as it turned out, everyone, Louis did survive the tornado, and we recorded a second episode. It's about an hour long, and we're going to include it as a bonus episode over at Prime Cuts, which is our new members-only 
1001 show over at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash 1001 stories podcast, which lately I have not been shy at all about promoting. It's a great opportunity for fans of the show to be able to support the show and at different levels, levels that can get you a new show called The Best of 1001 and a new show called Prime Cuts, which contains some of my favorite stories that I really have been wanting to get to, but only on a members-only basis. So do hope you'd stop by over there. We'll leave a link in the show notes for you. Meanwhile, this has uh, been a fantastic story about Ulysses S. Grant, for those of you interested in history and in his presidency, which, as we discussed, covered a lot of very important times in American history. And please pardon my hoarse voice, which can happen when you've been doing a lot of editing and not a lot of talking, and you come in cold, which is what I'm doing right here. This will be included as a midweek episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back soon.